I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Well, we're coming to the Easter of our Lenten season. Tomorrow we celebrate the, the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, uh, that triumphant entry where they waved palm branches and sang Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then one short week later, we have uh, less, really less than a week later, we have the passion, the crucifixion of the Lord and how quickly the, uh, the crowds turned on Christ. And we can read that story and be just really convinced uh, of what side you and I would be on. We can read that story and say, oh man, look at what they did to our Lord. They, they celebrated him and they rejoiced with him and um, they, they trusted in him. And then a week later, they all turned on him. And we could say, I would never do that. I love God too much to ever do that. I could never do that. Well, I, I also then turn my attention to the apostles. These, these who have followed him around daily for three years, who are in the upper room with him on Monday, Thursday, on Thursday night. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all say, surely not I. And, and Peter's just adamant, I, I would die for you. I would never betray you. But Jesus turns and knowing what is to come, looks at Peter and says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, there's lots of different ways that you could read that, but I tend to think of it as maybe a sorrow in the voice because Jesus knows how much Peter loves him. He's, he's watched him and walked with him and, and invested in him, and, and, and he knows Peter's heart. And yet, here with sorrow, he notes still that Peter is going to deny him before the day is through. And so if the apostles, if these disciples who loved Christ and walked with him for three years, if they, even they would turn on him and every one of them abandon him, can I really be so sure that given the right circumstances, I wouldn't be just like that crowd who goes from Palm Sunday celebrating Christ to Friday, crucifying Christ. What are the scenarios that might cause me to do that? This is one of the reasons that the Catholic Church talks about uh, hoping in salvation. We have no question at all whether or not Christ is able to save us, right? Some of our Protestant brothers and sisters would say, "You you can have assurance, you should know. And here's what I would say, because I grew up in that tradition. I grew up with the, uh, the belief that I could know about my salvation. And this is what I would say today. I can have complete and utter confidence in the saving work of Jesus. I can have complete and utter confidence that he is able to save me and that, that in fact, he is active and working in my life. What I can't say with confidence is that I will persist in holiness. I can look at my life and say, you know, right now, everything that I understand, all that I am, I am dedicating my life to God. I'm, I'm attempting that commandment to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I'm attempting to love my neighbor as myself. But is there something out in, in my life that if it didn't go just right, 
would cause me to turn on my Lord? Is there something that if it didn't go the way I expected it to go, I would abandon Christ? And, and God forbid that ever happened. God protect me from that ever happening. But I, I look at Peter. Peter was ready to die for Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll hear at tomorrow's gospel. He was ready to die because as they came to, to arrest Christ, uh, one of the other gospels gives us the details that he pulled his sword and struck the high priest's servant. He was ready to go out with a fight. But when Jesus corrected him, when Jesus turned and said, stop this, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. In that moment where Christ challenged his paradigms, he didn't know what to do. He still loved Christ and he wanted to follow after him and he followed from a distance, but he was frightened for his own life because he had been rebuked for doing the thing that he thought uh, would be protecting, protecting Christ. And then ultimately, as he's following after Christ, He's ready to go out in a blaze of glory. He's not ready to go out in humility. He's not ready to go out uh, as, as the tortured person. He wants to go out fighting, right? But this is not the path that God has for Peter. In fact, at the end of his life, he will be martyred. And after the resurrection, Jesus says to him, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And for Peter, this is important for him to get to the place in humility where he can accept that, because that's the very thing that caused him to abandon Christ at the cross when he was not able to control the terms of engagement. For you, that it, it may be a different trigger. There is something, though, that all of us have that doesn't want to really completely 100% submit to God. We want to hold something back for ourselves, some framework or some understanding that we have. And this is one of the reasons that we have Lent, because as we fast and as we let go of these things, uh, our, our imperfections tend to rise to the surface, right? You don't eat, you get a little grumpy. You try to give something up, uh, whether it be a habit or an addiction or something, you, you try to give it up and you get a lot grumpy. And all of, as we, as we, kind of prune off the extra aspects of our life that are unhealthy or that are unnecessary, the ugliness starts to show itself and rise to the surface for the purpose of being purified, for the purpose of us giving it up in humility and submitting ourselves fully to the will of God. And so if someone were to ask me, uh, well, are you, are you saved? I would say, well, of course I was saved when I was baptized. God God reached out and saved me, and I am being saved as Christ is sanctifying me, and I pray that I will persist in the friendship of God so that I might be saved at that final day. And part of that persisting is growing in humility. That's going to be our topic today. We're going to talk about the new book, Humility Rules, by Father Augustine Weta. Much more to come right after this. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Come on over and maybe share a humorous anecdote about how you have grown in humility over the course of this Lent. Much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. 
And here we are tomorrow, we uh, go into Holy Week. So we're at the very end of Lent. And what better way to finish off Lent than to talk about what it is that you and I should have gained through this process? And of course, that's just a little dose of humility, this recognition that uh, that even as I try my hardest to live out my faith in my Lenten dev- devotions, um, I still need the grace and and the help of God. I I realize through this Lenten process that I am not enough in and of myself. Uh, and so I've got in my hands this beautiful book that apparently is a little bit older, but was sent to me recently by Ignatius Press called Humility Rules. And it's about the rule of St. Benedict, but it's kind of a little uh, tongue-in-cheek with kind of a, you know, humility rules, man. And you know it's (laughs) tongue-in-cheek because you've got this picture of St. Benedict on front uh, holding a fuchsia skateboard. We're talking with the author today, Father Augustine Weta, who is a monk at the St. Louis Abbey. Father Weta, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure and an honor. First of all... It doesn't take too long to realize that this is written with a very specific audience in mind. Uh, this is a book. <laughs> you, of course, are a chaplain there at the at the school, the Priory School in St. Louis, uh, and mm-hmm. so this is written to teenagers who, as we all know, are already fairly skilled in uh, St. Benedict's vision of humility. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, in on one level, they are. There, there is a certain. Um, accuracy of self-knowledge that we, I think, undermine even deliberately by telling them things like, you're perfect just the way you are, and don't let anyone get in the way of your dreams, and think outside the box, you know. So my book sort of turns all that on its head, and I think the first chapter is actually entitled, Be Afraid. But in any case, they all have titles like, don't follow your dreams, keep, uh, uh, keep your head down, things like that. But, but I think naturally kids do have a certain degree of humility, teenagers in particular. I was actually, I was, <laughs> I was walking down the hall of the, our junior high just uh, about a week ago, and I had a book in my hand called British History, British Literature for Dummies. And one of the seventh graders said to me, why are you reading that? And I said, so I can figure out how to teach you. And he said, well, I'm not British. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which I think is is just the perfect comeback. It doesn't deny that he's <laughs> that he's a dummy, but it it turns my you know attack on its head, and that that's why I love working with kids, mm-hmm. and why I, I guess why I decided to write this book. You know, Saint Benedict really has um, has his finger on the pulse of of the human condition and on human nature, yeah. such that even though he wrote so long ago he really encapsulates something that we all need today. And for our family, we actually read the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, we try to do it more regularly than we actually do, uh, but we read it really at, at dinner time. Uh, and so That's fantastic. we, we kind of pull off that little monastic thing where we sit down, we, uh, we read a snippet of the rule and then we listen to an audio book of the lives of the saints uh, to get that wow. quiet, uh, quiet dinner feel, which is fantastic uh, if you have seven children yeah. running around, which we do. Um, but in that, we we think of the rule of St. Benedict as being primarily monastic, and, and of course that's its its main audience and, and what it was written for. 
but it encapsulates family life as well. And, and if you don't have mm. a family, if you're just trying to live your life in a way that pleases God and to, to find a way to, um, to, to live authentically uh, as an individual, I think the, the rule of St. Benedict helps with that as well. Uh, and and center, yeah. center to that is the, the theme of this book, which is the ladder of humility. So talk to us just a little bit maybe about the context that St. Benedict was writing in, because I think it's very similar to what we face today. And then <laughs> let's go into what the ladder of humility is. Well, um, uh, yeah, I, when I was reading the dialogues of St. Gregory the Great, it, it struck me how similar our lives, our life today is. It, that St. Benedict, who I think he was clearly a teenager or at least very, very young when he decided to become a monk, um, but was just very dissatisfied with school and with the world, the way he saw it, and unhappy with the way people around him seemed to be living. And the, at the time, this is, of course, like, the, what is it? Uh, let's see. If, uh, now I'm getting the date. Oh, 450 AD. Um, you know, there were these terrible, terrible scandals in the church, and he was disillusioned. And there were terrible scandals in politics, and there were diseases that were spreading that nobody could cure. And there were gangs of kids armed to the teeth running around in the streets. And it just seemed like the whole, and well, I mean, in many respects, in some respects, civilization seemed to be on the decline. Civil discourse was on the decline. Barbarians were literally at the gates. And so he decided to run away from home. Uh, and, and, but instead of joining the circus or, you know, I don't know, going to the big apple, um, which I guess didn't exist, he was already in the Big Apple, actually. He was in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided to go off and live in a cave in in the mountains. And he pulled it off, strangely enough. For once, the, the teenager did the right thing and um, became kind of famous for being alone in the mountains. And pretty soon, one or another guys joined him and more and more. And pretty soon, he wasn't alone anymore. And then he wrote... He It looks like he gave the gave it two attempts. First, he wrote a book which called The Rule of the Master, which was pretty harsh and um, says things like, uh, if somebody doesn't, uh, sticks around too long and won't work, find two big guys and escort them out, you know. <laughs> uh, and that doesn't, that doesn't appear to have, have sort of gone over well. In fact, his first group of monks tried to kill him. Right. <laughs> uh, but he tried it again and wrote the second rule, which is much gentler. It says things like, um, if you have to kick a monk out of the monastery, send an older monk with him to watch him and keep company, you know, to make sure he doesn't despair. And, and that, I, that's really beautiful. I mean, it's surprisingly modern, really, in its insight into human nature. We're talking today with Father Augustine Weta, and one of the things I love in St. Benedict's Rule, and he brings this up a couple of times, he, he says something along the lines of, uh, be gentle enough that the weakest will not despair, but, uh. but stringent enough that the strong have something to strive for. Yeah, yeah. And that's, our, our, initially, our kids find that a little confusing when they show up at the Priory School because, you know, I'll, I, in fact, one kid said to me the other day, you're picking on me. And I said, Yes, yes, I am. And I talked to your parents about this 
And they said, go ahead. <laughs> and the reason is because you're stronger than the other kids and they will look to you for leadership. So yes, when you speak out, I'm, I'm more attentive than when another, a weaker kid speaks out. And it really kind of threw him for a loop. <laughs> but the, the point is that a weaker kid, you know, has a lot of trouble controlling his, his temper or his mouth. And I'm not going to crack down on him as hard as I'm going to crack down on a strong kid who's a leader and knows better. Um, and this is different from the kind of system of justice I think they're used to, whereas if you, if you talk without raising your hand, you immediately get a demerit or whatever. Um, but, but it's very Benedictine to, to adapt to, to each monk's needs, each kid's needs. Well, and this realization that, um, that a rule, even as, as unchanging as the rule of St. Benedict is, uh, and has been for, for centuries as a guide for the church and for those who are seeking sanctity, uh, even as, mm. as unchanging as it is, it is eminently flexible and adaptable. Oh, yeah. Because it looks at who the person is and where they fall in this ladder of humility, and we can pick up at whatever step we are uh, and, and continue on. We can find something in it, no matter what level we are, find something in it that will help us grow spiritually. Sure. And one rule that just never changes is this rule about sleeping with your knife. Like, you, you definitely never want to sleep with a sword, because he says, you might roll over and stab yourself. And that that's just timeless wisdom. Right I'm telling you, that is, that's wise right there. <laughs> he also has this rule about boisterous laughter, though. I see, I see that we've kind of moved away from that one. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you say boisterous laughter. I think that's right. Um, our, my novice master, he explained it. He said, it's laughter like this. <laughs> That that laughter in itself is a sign of joy, and and people laugh to bond with one another. So there's nothing wrong with laughter per se, but there's a certain kind of laughter mm-hmm. that you, the monk has to really studiously avoid, and that's the laughter that 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 is cruel. Uh, because after all, the very best jokes are always a little bit cruel, um, and so the very best jokes are probably not the ones you want to tell. Sadly <laughs> enough. Right. <laughs> That's why I say that uh, dad jokes are the highest form of humor because no one's the brunt of those, right? It's all wordplay. Ah, well, that's interesting. So, yeah, it's, uh, th- there was a study came out just recently about what different cultures found funny. And it turns out what the, uh, the British, I think, prefer wordplay. The French prefer jokes about death. Uh, Americans, though, prefer jokes that make people look stupid. Huh. which makes a lot of sense to me. Incidentally, the Japanese do not have jokes. Really? Which is, well, yeah, which is a sort of interesting, but they, they have a different kind of sense of humor. They, they like um, practical jokes and silliness. Which would explain... And the Germans apparently, the Germans apparently find all jokes equally funny, <laughs> which is also no surprise. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking today with... Uh, with Father Augustine Weta, you've got this this fantastic book. Uh, before we go into the next segment and talk about the Ladder of Humility specifically, I want to know where you got your Photoshop skills. Yeah, well, I I'm a little bit um, ADHD, and the flip no, uh, on the I am a lot ADHD, and the flip side of that is that when something interests me, I just absolutely zone into it, and um, I just get really interested in playing with pictures and 
I, my mother is kind of a famous artist, and I just couldn't stand the thought that somebody would illustrate. You know, I, I, lo- I started reading a lot of sort of teen spirituality books, and they're all illustrated with these sort of big-eyed cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, just awful, awful art. And I thought, well, I'm going to put ancient art in there, but then I couldn't, I couldn't leave it just like that. No, I mean, I could, but I think it would be less interesting. So I photoshopped little elements into it, like Frisbees and jam boxes and surfboards and things like that. And the more I worked on it, the more obsessed I became. And pretty soon I was, I had what, 60 of these illustrations. And lucky for me, St. Um, Ignatius, Ignatius Press was very uh, generous. They, they let me design the book and even design the cover, which they said they never do. Honestly, half of the fun of this book is just looking through the illustrations. Uh, you've got pictures of hockey playing monks. Uh, you've got them doing a concert, uh, sitting at a grand yeah. piano with uh, with lights and drums and everything else. Uh, really just some fantastic, fun artwork. We're talking today with Father Augustine Weta about his book, Humility Rules, available right now on Ignatius Press. Find out more information by going to AugustineWetta.com. That's W-E-T-T-A, AugustineWetta.com. There's more to this conversation right after the break, so don't go anywhere. Uh, why don't you join us over on social media, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Let's have a conversation here at the end of Lent about humility. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about humility, everyone's favorite topic. And we're talking with Father Augustine Weta, who is a Benedictine monk at uh, at the Abbey in St. Louis. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Oh, I, I'm enjoying it. It's like sitting in someone's living room. It's that, great. That's super my, easy. That's my goal. Uh, the only thing that would make it more like that is to have a, a glass of scotch, but it's maybe a little too early in the morning for that. So we'll we'll just and apparently seven kids running around as well. You know that's why uh, that's why we record when we do because uh, they're going to be up in a little <laughs> bit and it's not going to be quite this quiet. So <laughs> well, I'll be you know honestly when when a kid when I'm giving a sermon and a kid screams in church, I am pleased and I have a little speech I give about how the you know. We live in a life-affirming, fertile culture. The, the Catholicism does not keep kids out of the church, does not see kids as foreign to the church. They belong here. And as soon as that kid stops screaming, I want you to pinch him because he's a witness to our our Catholic faith, the way it should be lived. So well, I got no problem with kids running around. And let's talk a little bit about that specifically because we in the Catholic Church, not only do we include them in the service, but we actually have the view that they are initiated into the body of Christ to some extent, that as they've been baptized and share a common baptism, not only, not only do we allow children in the mass, but they actually have the right to be there. They they are owed that right to be able to worship God uh, in a similar way as part of the the responsibility, right. And the responsibility. Yeah. When I hear confessions, I, I always tell the kids, if your parents won't take you to mass, I want you to go down to the kitchen and grab two pots 
and run around the house screaming, take me to mass, banging the pots together. And you'll probably get grounded or sent to your room, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> I haven't yet had any uh, backlash from the parents, but I'm expecting it any day now. Uh, the other thing is, when I when I preach the missions and have to ask for money, I tell the kids they are not exempt. If they get an allowance, they should contribute. And if they don't get an allowance, then they should do some work of charity or something and offer it up for the missions because they are equal in dignity to all the rest of us and equally part of the church. And so they have equal responsibilities. Yeah. So speaking of this, you're, you've written a book about our, our spiritual responsibilities, uh, encapsulated in St. Benedict's ladder of humility. And this is a really easy read. It's, um, it's not, uh, overly taxing. It's very Benedictine in that way that it's, it's challenging to the strong, but, but, um, accessible to the weak. One of the things that I love about this uh, is every chapter, brief though it is, has a little bit of homework. And so there is, um, it's an it's a simple thing to do. It's not a very uh, uh, complex task, but as with anything dealing with humility, it's a very difficult task that you you challenge us as we read it to do simple things like uh, the next time someone compliments you, give God the credit. And we think, oh, yeah. wow, that's that's really. I mean, even as an adult, that's really hard to do. And so, yeah, t- I don't think I did that when you complimented my book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all have room to grow. So, <laughs> those who can't, those who can't do, teach. So, let's talk a little bit about specifically the ladder of humility. Maybe where what place it holds within the rule, and then the place that it should hold in our lives? Hmm. Well, uh, St. Benedict says of the ladder of humility that it's a strange kind of ladder, a Jacob's ladder, he refers specifically to Jacob's ladder, um, with, that the higher you climb, the lower you get. And uh, so the lower you go, the higher you climb. Oddly. And so um, he starts with the fear of God, which is... Um, intimidating and scary and uh, not an end in itself, and then ends with reverence. And and so you build from, I guess you could call them sort of negative virtues to po- to the most positive virtues, you, from focusing on your weakness to focusing on God's greatness. And the clo- the, though ironically, the closer you get to God, the less holy you feel. And I, I've, as this book has gone viral, I've been getting letters from people who say, but I, I don't actually feel like I'm making progress. And I have to write back and say, that's probably a good sign. Because <laughs> if you really feel like you're making progress in humility, you're probably not. <laughs> right. So this ladder draws us out of ourselves and out of our own self-interest and, and into really recognizing the presence of God in the everyday little things of our life. Uh, you, mm. You've titled this book St. Benedict's 12-Step Guide to Genuine Self-Esteem. Talk to me a little bit about, because as we just said, it seems that self-esteem and humility are sometimes at odds. Uh, Why link those two concepts, and what was the purpose of of using St. Benedict's Ladder to, uh, to give these teens an authentic view of self? 
<laughs> well, yeah, full disclosure, the title is a little misleading. I, I don't actually believe in self-esteem. I, don't, I think, if anything, it's been way overblown. And um, in fact, uh, originally, I just set out to write a commentary on the rule of St. Benedict for teenagers, which, of course, no one would ever read. Uh, but I, the, I was at, I was going to the pharmacy to pick up some medicine for one of our old monks, and there was a book on the shelf, and I'm going to get the title wrong, uh, and I'm glad because I don't want to get sued. But it, it was called something like the, the, the teen girls, the, a girl's guide to self-esteem, and then the, the subtitle I remember that one was uh, learning to love the most important person in the world. And I thought, uh, and it just appalled me. And I looked at the pharmacist when I got to the front of the line. And I was like, this is terrible advice. Like, they already think they're the center of the world. Now you're just putting pressure on them. And I, I ranted. And finally, they just gave me the book. And uh, so I, I went online and I looked at all these books written for teenagers with titles like that. Um, in fact, I, say, I just noticed that... Um, I've been outsold apparently by a book called Girl Wash Your Face. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, I should write another book called Girl Wash Someone Else's Face. Like, I, I really think this focus, uh, this navel gazing, the, the self complimenting ethos is um, frankly having the opposite of the desired effect. Uh, this very morning at our prayer service in the school, a kid um, got up and he led the service and he said, I want to thank Priory for, because, well, for teaching me how to fail. <laughs> and the whole, the whole church went pretty silent. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to fail. <laughs> there's, no, there's no question of that. The question, well, what makes you a man is how you ac accept that failure, how you turn, that, you turn to that failure. And what you do with it, not whether or not, you know, the, yeah, not whether or not you fail at all. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, anyway, the, yeah, so the title is a little bit uh, deceptive. I mean, I can't imagine, for example, John the Baptist talking about how much he esteemed himself, you know? Right. I must decrease, you must increase, right? That this, yeah. I, this idea that um, even our best efforts, uh, really don't measure up right that, that we that we have a, a, a specific part to play that we have a very uh, very important role and that role is to point to Christ and to get out of the way in the things that we do in our lives right and and that doesn't mean that you you're obsequious or you know excessively self-deprecating if you have a gift you should acknowledge it you know and it does God know justice to downplay the gifts he's given you. I think I, ha no, I know I have a story in the book about a friend of mine I met at Oxford when I was studying theology there, and he is, his family lived in a castle, and I went to visit them on Christmas, and his mom drove me up to their house in Oxford, we came around the corner, and there is this six-story stone castle with its own tennis court, swimming pool, pond, golf course, <laughs> Eucharistic Adoration Chapel, and I, I took one look at it, and being a worldly monk, I said, wow! And she looked at her home, and she looked back at me, and she said, yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We're so blessed. 
And you, and that in itself startled me because you would have expected her to say something like, oh, well, it's really hard to keep up or, you know, it's, it, it's just something I threw together or, you know, I don't know anything, yeah. but she was just in, just as much in awe of this gift as I was. And I thought that was, that was a sign of real humility, you know, not to downplay God's gifts, but to acknowledge them with all the joy that anyone would. Well, I think to recognize what they are, because they are, they are God's gifts. And so rather than yeah. building myself up because I have such, such a wonderful, whatever, or such a, a strength or such a, a resource, <clears throat> I think that that true humility comes from the recognition that what we have, all of it is a gift from God. And that could be either our great right. strength, but it could also be a, a certain weakness that we have that, um, yeah, oh, I'm not, I'm not good at such and such. Well, that in itself could be a gift from God and to look at that and recognize it and accept it as a gift and cherish the fact that um, maybe this thing that I'm not so good at, it, it's, it's all right. And it's for a purpose. And so to rest, right. to rest in our difficulties as well as in our successes. Well, I'm, I coach rugby at our school and for 15 years, we did not have a single winning season. In fact, we only broke even once. And that year, the kids tore down the goalposts. And, uh, and so, yeah. And, you know, some people might say that had something to do with my, my coaching. Uh, in fact, my players did. <laughs> and so do I, I was a terrible rugby coach. Um, but I do think God was calling me to coach rugby for that time. And, and it, when I'm in a better mood, I, I say to myself that it was a special sign of God's favor that I failed uh, because, you know, the Bible is just a long history of failures. And, and in fact, we, the, the church honors someone like uh, Philippine Duchenne. She was called to be a missionary. She, she converted one Indian who then apostatized immediately. Mm-hmm. So and yet she was faithful to her call. You know, God doesn't expect us to be successful, he expects us to be faithful. And that's actually the key. I think I'm, I think my next book is going to be on failure. I'm pretty sure I've, I've already started writing it. <laughs> well, and let's talk about this because from a perspective, St. Benedict was a failure because his attempt was to go and to live alone. And he, uh, for, for his best efforts, people kept coming to him. And so he, yeah. he could have just uh, gone on in frustration at the fact that people kept ruining his plans, uh, but <laughs> but he took that moment and and embraced that uh, failure, as it were, as a gift from God. And out of that, now we have this wonderful rule for living, the 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 Benedictine rule, which is written for people in monastic life, but works in our individual lives as well. We're talking today with Father Augustine Weta. Find more information about him over at AugustineWetta.com. That's W-E-T-T-A dot com. There's more to my conversation with Father Augustine Weta available online to all those who support the show through Patreon. For a small gift, they ensure that we stay on the air. And in gratitude, I give them extra content. If you want to join their numbers, go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Support the Show link in the top right corner. And be a part of that community. Find us on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's more to come right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Today we had a conversation with Father Augustine Weta. He's a Benedictine monk at the Abbey of St. Louis, and he's also the author of the book Humility Rules, St. Benedict's 12-Step Guide to Genuine Self-Esteem, available right now on Ignatius Press. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our archives, including this week's, are available over at OutsideTheWalls.com. You can listen to it again and again, share it with your friends on social media, and much more. Speaking of much more, there's much more to this conversation with Father Augustine Weta, available to all of those who support the show. We have a great community of listeners who love the show, love what we do, and want to see it continue. And so they forgo one coffee a month, about $5, one of those fancy coffees. And uh, in my gratitude for them doing that month in and month out to help us stay on the air, uh, I record an extra segment with our guests each and every week. Got some other rewards as well as the tiers go up from that level. Go take a look while you're listening to the archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Up in the top right-hand corner, there is that little link. It says support the show hyphen Patreon. Click that and look at the various tiers and see if that's something you might want to be a part of uh, to get some fantastic extra content. We've been exploring humility today, and this is something that really is kind of a natural outgrowth out of our Lenten penances, out of these practices, because either we're going to succeed in them and realize our dependence on God and come to grow in love for him more, or we're going to not do so well, fail at it, and recognize our need for God, which is going to, again, lead us into a deep reverence for God. And St. Benedict has these uh, 12 steps on what he calls the ladder of humility. And for him, humility is the center of the Christian life. Uh, And I tend to agree with him on that, that it's a continual process as we sacrifice. You know, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. One of the ways that we do that is to come and uh, submit our will to God time after time after time again, to submit our desires to God, to submit everything about us and what we do and where we go and what we hope for and how we pray, and to submit those things uh, to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And so that, that draws us deeper into humility and draws us into an understanding of what our relationship is to God. The more we recognize our own smallness and God's greatness and and come to understand that correctly, the more that we're going to be uh, truly humble, not a false humility, but, but one that is really grounded in that relationship with God. And our scripture today comes from the book of Philippians, and it, it points to this. It points to the fact that all that we might think is, is good for us and that we might desire here on earth really uh, has to be viewed in light of what is promised to us in God. Brothers and sisters, I consider everything as a loss because of the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have accepted the loss of all things, and I consider them so much rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own based on the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, depending on faith to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by being conformed to his death. If somehow 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It is not that I have already taken hold of it or have already attained perfect maturity, but I continue my pursuit in hope that I may possess it, since I have indeed been taken possession of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, for my part, I do not consider myself to have taken possession, just one thing, forgetting what lies behind, but straining forward to what lies ahead. I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Christ Jesus. That reading comes from the book of Philippians and really kind of points to what we were talking about in the first segment about do I uh, know that I'm saved? And and Paul says, I'm not claiming to already be there. I haven't already taken hold of it or attained perfect maturity, but I continue in my pursuit in hope that I may possess it. And This hope isn't a wistful hope. You know, in another place, Paul says, uh, we have hope and hope does not disappoint. But here we recognize that in ways I don't even yet fully realize, I need God's grace and I need to submit myself in humility to that grace. Now, if Paul is saying that he has not already attained it, uh, after he's just now finished saying that he counts all things as rubbish, so that he might gain Christ, then looking at myself in the mirror, I most certainly haven't attained it, right? I, my appetites are not yet curbed to the place where his were. I still very much have an attachment to certain things, whether that be a, a favorite food or the favorite Netflix show or, or whatever it is that, that I enjoy. I've not yet gotten to the place where I have seen Christ so clearly that all of these other things are put in their proper perspective. And Paul so saw Christ so clearly that the proper perspective for those things was the rubbish heap. All of these things are trash. But we look at that and it seems so extreme. You're saying I can't enjoy things? Well, no, of course not. I, I don't think that Paul is in a place where he didn't enjoy things, but the things that he enjoyed were the things of God. I think a dangerous but necessary prayer is God, help us to see you so clearly that everything else is put in its proper perspective. Our reading from church history today comes from a commentary on the Psalms by St. Augustine. God could give no greater gift to men than to make his word, through whom he created all things, their head, and to join them to him as his members, so that the word might be both Son of God and Son of Man one God with the Father, and one man with all men. The result is that when we speak with God in prayer, we do not separate the Son from Him. And when the body of the Son prays, it does not separate its head from itself. It is the one Savior of His body, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who prays for us and in us and is Himself the object of our prayers. He prays for us as our priest. He prays in us as our head. And he is the subject of our prayers as our God. Let us then recognize both our voice in his and his voice in ours. When something is said, especially in prophecy, about the Lord Jesus Christ that seems to belong to a condition of lowliness unworthy of God, we must not hesitate to ascribe this condition to one 
who did not hesitate to unite himself with us. Every creature is his servant, for it was through him that every creature came to be. We contemplate his glory and divinity when we listen to these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. Here we gaze on the divinity of the Son of God, something supremely great and surpassing all greatness of his creatures. Yet in other parts of Scripture we hear him as one sighing, praying, giving praise and thanks. We hesitate to attribute these words to him because our minds are slow to come down to his humble level when we have just been contemplating him in his divinity. It is as though we were doing him an injustice and acknowledging in a man the words of one with whom we spoke when we prayed to God. We are usually at a loss and try to change the meaning. Yet our minds find nothing in Scripture that does not go back to him, nothing that will allow us to stray from him. Our thoughts must then be awakened to keep their vigil of faith. We must realize that the one whom we were contemplating a short time before in his nature as God took to himself the nature of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men and found to be a man like others. He humbled himself by being obedient, even to accepting death. As he hung on the cross, he made the psalmist words his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We pray to him as God. He prays for us as a servant. In the first case, he is the creator. In the second, a creature. Himself unchanged, he took to himself our created nature in order to change it and made us one man with himself, head and body. We pray then to him, through him, in him, and we speak along with him, and he along with us. That reading comes from a treatise on the Psalms by St. Augustine. In this reading, we find an invitation to humility. It's buried. It's a little hard to find, but it's there. We are invited to make Christ our head. Now think about what a head does. The head sees. The head thinks, the head makes decisions. And so this is our prayer. God, help us to see things as you see them. God, help us to understand things as you understand them. And God, let your will be done in our lives. Just as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's all the time we have for today. I pray that you have a blessed Holy Week Uh, Make the effort. Go to the Triduum services at your parish. It will be spiritually enriching. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey, Carrie Carlson, and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Support the Show link. Join their numbers and get extra content in the process. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.